Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. My calendar says that it is Thursday, apparently the day after. We only recognize and show appreciation to farmers on one day now, October 12th. It's the day after we show appreciation to farmers. Amanda Radke, Mitchell, South Dakota, fresh off of her presentation at the Man March. Hey, Trent. I don't, I don't know about all these made up holidays. I'm kind of with Andrew on across the pond. We're ridiculous over here in America. It's not a holiday. It's a day of recognition. All right. Well, I guess that's nice. No, I think it should be farmer appreciation day 365 days a year. I mean, every time I eat, I'm thankful that there's a farmer making it happen. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Before we welcome our guest, actually, I should bring him into this because he might want to comment on it, too. I'm a little reluctant to bring him in. Why is that? My son-in-law is named Andrew Hazelwood. My producer of Trend on the Loose is Andrew Southwick. My partner in crime every morning on Across the Pond is Andrew Henderson. I can't handle another Andrew. (laughs) Well, you won't forget his name. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Evans, how are you? I'm doing good. You're doing very good this morning. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show. How are the Twin Cities? I I don't go there on purpose too often. It is cold this this morning. As it, I guess it may I guess it may snow tonight. I heard, and then uh, I guess over the weekend it's going to be in the fifties, and then next week it's going to be low in the twenties. So awesome weather. It's it's that time of year where if you don't like the weather, just wait twenty minutes and it'll change. Yep, or you move somewhere else where it's warmer. <laughs> well, I was going to remind you, you are in Minnesota. You know, I mean, it's, it's late October in Minnesota. That's ha- that's what happens. Yeah, I mean, I have the opportunity to move if I want, but I love Minnesota, so we are going to stay here. And meanwhile, all those crazy people who are just waiting for eight inches of ice to show up on every single body of water so they can go sit out there and chase a fish are excited like never before. Yeah, I'm not that. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of brother-in-laws who 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 are into fishing on the ice, and so they're into that, but I'm not. They're not normal, are they, Andrew? I mean, there's one thing to people to enjoy going fishing. These people are just they're just completely consumed by it. Yeah, they enjoy it. They enjoy being out on the ice when it's when it's below zero. They have some drinks and some good conversation. Yeah, now, now I think you've day. gotten to the real issue. I don't think it has anything to do with fish. Probably not. <laughs> you mean they go hide from their wives in a, in a cold house in the middle of a frozen lake? Mm-hmm. And they have fun and they do it every year, every almost a lot of weekends a year. So, yeah. You, you know, that's the immediate thought anybody would have. But I continue to talk to an ever-growing number of women who are equally as whack out, whacked out about this as the men. Yeah, I've never been, and I probably won't ever go. Yeah, you and me you know, both. You know, Trent, I can't really pick on ice fishermen because I found myself in the middle of the wilderness in North Dakota chasing raccoons that's, up trees. That's so. totally different. That's totally different. Is it? It's yeah. a, It's an extra level of crazy. <laughs> no, he's insane. <laughs> I can I just say publicly because Marty's probably going to listen to this. I no, have to, he's not. He does not he gonna listen. No, he will not. 
<laughs> yeah, you're probably not cool enough. Well, Marty Beard, he was a great tour guide while we were up in North Dakota for the Man March. Thorne and I had a great time hunting coons and learning about the stars and learning how to read a compass. And it felt like a rite of passage for a little boy to experience that. So that six-year-old boy, he came home a man. He told me he had to get outside. He had his coon hat on when he got home and he went out with his BB gun and did man stuff. Oh, Andrew, this, this kid, he developed into something like you've never seen before. And I knew it was going to be good. But when we sat down in a restaurant for a noon lunch and he looked to his mom and mom said, Thorne, what are you going to have? I can't eat here, mom. I only eat what I kill. We got issues. We That's got awesome. Issues. <laughs> and Kevin Jenkins says, what did he say? <laughs> like, Kevin, you too. You have to eat what Thorne kills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Trent, I'm excited to, to have our guest on today because he's been a longtime listener and always brings up some great things to discuss. And what I think is interesting about Andrew is he has the consumer perspective. And, you know, your tagline on the show is connecting food producers to food consumers. And it's really cool because I've I've always said that I really think the last couple of years have created a unique opportunity for us to connect with consumers like never before and and provide real-time solutions at a time when consumers really need it. And so I think Andrew has an interesting story. And first off, Andrew, I'd like to just hear how you got connected with listening to Trent's show and and the evolution that you've had in in wanting to learn more about agriculture. Well, I guess I will say prior to COVID, um, I, and to me and my wife, we would just, we would just shop for the the lowest price and we would buy in bulk. And I never noticed, um, any, any of the country of origin labels. I didn't know where my food came from. I knew nothing. I just, you know, I probably took the food for granted, just knowing that food was always going to be at the grocery store. And then when, uh, when uh, COVID hit and market shut down and access, uh, that like restaurants shut down and schools shut down, I heard on the news that a lot of farmers had to, uh, like the ones for the produce farmers, they could not harvest because they didn't have a market. Dairy farmers had to dump their milk and um, a lot of the meat markets, they were closed because uh, people were, were infected and then empty shelves at the grocery store. So I, I just became intrigued and just began researching um, just basic agriculture in Minnesota. Um, and then it kind of came to the evolution of, wow, I really don't know where my food came from. And then I just learned of all, I mean, over the weeks and months and now two and a half years later, um, just learning more about the challenges that you guys face each and every day um, in the beef, the dairy and the produce market and just every market out there. And now I mainly shop at farmer's markets just I mean, it's not, I mean, mainly because I like the food. I like uh, getting to know the farmers that, that, that have the passion to grow the food and to know their story. Um, and I appreciate everything that you guys do because without you guys, we wouldn't have clothes. We wouldn't have coffee. We wouldn't have gas. We wouldn't, I mean, we'd be, I guess we wouldn't, be hydrated, we wouldn't have food, and we wouldn't have clothes. So I appreciate everything that you guys have done for the last 
years years ago andrew i went to um the farmer's market that was maybe on the campus of university of minnesota in st paul and that was a tremendous experience and endeavor is that yeah it's really that the one it's really cool um and so i live in in minneapolis and there's a um there's a market called uh, the st paul farmer's market and it's a collection of like 20 to 30 different markets as far as in the suburbs and in the mar- and and the main one in a, in the downtown hub of 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 St. Paul and i think they've been there since 1854 or 1856 mm. and so they require that that every producer there only grows food on their property whereas in other markets I mean, whether it's in Minneapolis, I mean, I guess I don't know where, but I know that you have to grow whatever you sell. Yeah, and the reason for that is, and most people don't know this, and I'm impressed that you do, 75% of the food sold through farmers markets in the United States comes through normal food distribution channels. They simply take it out to the farmers market, but you have, and that's, frankly, that's why I went to the one I was talking about, is because I knew they were designating you grow it or don't bring it. Yeah, I agree. I I was I was amazed that that I mean that there is that loophole. I guess I didn't re- I didn't realize that, but I knew of another market that is actually that is a lot bigger on a scale than the St. Paul, and there were people that did not grow their own food there that were allowed to sell. And I didn't. I guess I've only been there once or twice at that one, but. Almost every weekend I go to the big one in uh, St. Paul, and I try to make it a more of a family kind of occasion with my mm. uh, with my oldest daughter. It's so a roll out with me a lot of times. We will continue the family atmosphere of acquiring food. We'll get back with more after this. Let's talk about lignite energy right off the bat. Coal is a reliable source of energy, producing electricity. We are weaning ourselves off of coal, creating a vulnerability that I don't think most people understand. If you want to get all of the ins and the outs, how about reclamation? You know, the trench on the loose that I did from the coal mine really speaks to reclamation. When the coal is removed from the soil, then the reclamation process takes place and it's put back exactly as it was found before it was disturbed. This coal system of today is one that cannot be beat From an energy supply standpoint, we need to get back to understanding and appreciating coal. Lignite.com for full details about everything that I'm talking about here. Welcome back. (laughs) Trent Luce alongside Amanda Radke, Andrew Evans. Um, Oh, I got another Andrew I can tie into this. You know, on Across the Pond every morning, when uh, Andrew is standing in the middle of a dairy farm in the UK saying, now see ch- this cow here, Trent, you know, and remember Andrew saying that? Mm, no. It it only happens every time across the pond starts. So I could see why oh. you wouldn't remember. Oh, good morning. No, good morning. no. In the little video, it's like the intro oh. video, Andrew standing in the middle of a dairy in the UK and that dairy is owned by Andrew Evans. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> do they look alike? Probably not. Yeah, they look like cousins. <laughs> Only Andrew Evans in the UK milks forty five hundred cows every day. I don't think Andrew Evans in Minneapolis does that. I have I do not. So 
instead of us asking you questions, now that you have this new level of interest, awareness, and acquiring information, what questions do you have for Amanda and I about food production? Ooh, I was not expecting that question. <laughs> Me neither. This could be fun. <laughs> I mean, I guess, how do you guys try to stay positive with all the adversity that, I mean, you are facing every day. I mean, a lot of things are beyond your control from the prices that you get to, you know, trade towards, I guess, new laws and legislation that is passed each and every year on a, on a, at a, at a federal level and a state level. Oh, Amanda. She's you never, know? she's never positive, Andrew. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a grouch. <laughs> uh, someone told me it's like impossible to be a farmer or rancher and not be an optimist because something is always going wrong, you know, whether it's drought or weather events or volatile markets or, uh, you know, clearly politicians that seek to undermine our food system. It, there's a lot. I, I think maybe Trent would agree with this here, but I think that's why we go on the road a lot and we speak a lot because... Um, I kind of give other producers the pep talk that I need to hear too. Uh, you know, I know people are hurting and struggling. And so if I can get them to feel better or feel like there's, they still have fight in them to, to continue to operate and, uh, to work to overcome some of these issues. So their kids and grandkids have a fighting chance. I guess that's what fuels me. And I, I always come home a little recharged too, just simply because I know I'm not the only one in the fight and, and in this industry trying to make it work when it seems like the deck is stacked against you. So back in the early days when I just started writing a column every week for the High Plains Journal and I had not been out speaking a lot yet, I had a friend in Missouri that asked me to come and speak in St. Joseph, Missouri, <clears throat> excuse me, at a, a farm function. No, it's like, it's not a farm function. It's a, like a farm meets town, farm and country show, both, you know, where people come and uh, they, it's not just a farm show is what I was getting at. And I'll, I'll never forget this as somebody was saying, well, who's Trent Luce? And another guy answered by saying, well, he's kind of a cheerleader for farmers. <laughs> <laughs> that should be on your business card, Trent. Uh, yeah, it should be. <laughs> but then, Andrew, to your, to your real point, and it, this was the topic of discussion yesterday on this very program. And I even have it written right in front of me because J.C. Cole went to Latvia in 1992. And that was when the Soviet Union was crumbling and people, they didn't have anything. And he said, when I went over to Latvia, if you were not an optimist, you didn't survive. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anything has changed. And to Amanda's point, you have to be an optimist to continue to take care of the land because you, you never accumulate wealth. Your wealth is in the land and the resources mm -hmm. that you have. You, you struggle to pay bills every single day. And then with all of that struggle, you try to inspire the next generation to come back and be a part of this fun and games. To Amanda's point again, when you go and visit with people and you get fueled and reminded what we're doing is doing God's work. We're taking care of his creation. And by taking care of his creation, we're improving mankind. You just continue to find a way to slug over these hurdles to make it happen. And then the other part of that, which your question was, uh, back to this oldest premise that in 1984, I graduated high school. And when you go to any 
let's just talk about beef cattle functions because there was a lot of leadership beef cattle organizations. The, the discussion always involved if you're going to be successful in food production at the farm and gate level, you must be a price maker, not a price taker. And so we've been a part of doing that as long as we possibly can, uh, dating back to when we lived in, when Kelly and I first got married, we lived in Missouri and we were selling meat direct to people in, in 1994. That was before it was cool to do that. And so we jumped through all of those hurdles. That's what you do. You just continue to find a way to jump through hurdles until, as Hank Vogler says, the bank comes and takes your dolls and dishes. It's that, you know, it's that straightforward. But you know, Trent and Andrew, I have to say, my husband Tyler, he read a column or an article that was written about me where I had said that the American cattle rancher is in trouble and we're facing a lot of issues. And my husband said, <laughs> and I got a little upset, but he said, who are these ranchers that are in trouble? Because I just see people getting bigger and doing better and expanding and all those things. And I said, Tyler, you don't see the the despair on the countryside. And I, I asked how many young people just in our neighborhood are coming back to be in production agriculture. They're not, unless it's, you know, a very big operation. You know, you used to see a lot more young people, I feel like, entering the business. And now you don't because the cost of entry is so high. And yet people's love and passion is in this industry and they can't see a pathway forward because they're over leveraged. They're stressed out. Most farm families have to have off farm income, sometimes multiple streams of income, and then the full-time job of running an operation. And so I said, Tyler, yeah, there might be some, some guys that are very successful in agriculture, but what I think we're seeing, and this is where it gets depressing for me, is we're going to continue to see that consolidation of food producers where it's just a lot of big mega farmers and that small family farm, that family that's able to make a living off the land and raise their kids on the land, that's becoming more and more of a pipe dream. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you see that, Trent? Do you? Would you agree well, or not? My first thing to Tyler is he's asking where that's happening, and he's in, he's part of a family that has a two-income stream off-farm so that you can stay in the cattle business. I know. <laughs> I'm well aware of how much I have to work to keep this cattle dream alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, he should be too. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, there was a number, Daryl Peel from Oklahoma State put this number out. 90% of the cattle operations are sustainable because they had an off-farm income. You go work at a job so that you can stay in the business of food production. That's a crazy thing. But it's it's just a, a mutant gene that you possess that you want to be out there taking care of the land and livestock. It doesn't make it right, but I, mean, I, I until, guess I thought I until you truly become the price maker and set your own. Now there are people that have done that and, and have done that quite successfully, but until you get to that point, you struggle. Well, what were you going to ask? Oh, I was just, I was going to add something. I was going to say I thought I read something from the USDA last year that said that eighty to ninety percent of 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 the small family farms have at least one have at least one person in the family working off farm, and it may be even more more than that. And every every farm that I buy from, whether it's uh, whether it's beef, pork, or pig, I mean at least one of the family members are working off farm on a full time basis. 
just to make uh, the farm uh, the farm operable and, and 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 alive, like you said. And that's not a new thing. My mother was an, a registered nurse for forty two years, and we've had farm wives that were nurses or school teachers since the beginning of time. And so it's not like this just happened. It's always been that way. Um, again, it doesn't make it right. But, you know, the reason that most farm families have that off-farm income actually has nothing to do with the income. It's for the insurance, probably. It's absolutely for the perks and the ability to pay a health insurance premium and make it work. 100%. So, we got to go break? We're all route. We're right. halfway through. My goodness, he asked one question, and we went the entire segment. What's going to happen in the second half? More questions. More after this. When I have, over the years, shared the information because people want to be critical of nitrates, people want to be critical of estrogen, I'll tell people that you, you're worried about your bacon or your ham because it's cured and it might have nitrates, but you flock to eating leafy greens because leafy greens are the highest level of nitrate possible. And you know what the first question that person always asks me? How do they get them in there? How do they get them in there, Nathan? <laughs> well, they're, they're cured, right? They're cured vegetables. And vegetables actually cure many diseases. So just like your bacon's cured, you know, I wrote a paper called uh, Nitrite, the Cure for Chronic Disease. So just like nitrite, nitrate cure meat and prevent, you know, lipid oxidation and prevent, you know, food spoilage and bacterial infections and or bacterial overgrowth in the food, they do the same thing to us. They cure a lot of things because they improve nitric oxide, they improve oxygenation, they prevent oxidation, inflammation, and immune dysfunction. You want to live a cured life? Take a nitric oxide supplementation every day like I do. No2u.com. It's no2u.com. Put trend as your coupon code and you win big favors because you get free shipping and a 10% discount. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce alongside on this roll route edition, Andrew Evans joining us as a dietitian from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Amanda Radke. She's a nutritionist for cattle, well, at least for her kids. That's the, the one thing. Uh, Andrew, we're going to get into uh, all of this stuff, but uh, I want to get back to some of the basics in, in nutrition. Meat, dairy, produce, and fruit and veggies. It's a little higher price for, you know, for a number of people, but then the processed foods that are like a lot of the cereals and great, I mean, just a lot of the processed foods are cheaper and more affordable. And the way that the manufacturers make that and way, I guess, whatever is in, in those packages, people like the taste of it. And so that's what they gravitate to. And it, I, it's a bad, it's a bad, it's a bad trend. So it's rare that I have the ability to educate her on nutrition anymore, but I like to challenge myself once in a while. And by the way, you never, Amanda, just so you know, whether it's your daughter or not, never call Andrew a nutritionist. He's a dietitian. Okay. Yeah. There's a difference. And if you'd like to get the the, (laughs) difference. What's the difference? difference. You know what? Let's just do this. What's the difference? Thank you. (laughs) uh, As a registered dietitian, you have to have a four-year degree. Uh, you have to do a one year, a one year uh, uh, internship. Um, so it's kind of like a clinical for nursing, but for a dietitian, um, I think it's a minimum of like 1,100 hours or 1,200 hours 
working in a hospital setting and then other other like outpatient and food service and clinical. And then you have to take a board and a test and you have to pass that test. And then as a nutritionist, you can just take a couple hour class, you know, a certificate from whoever and you can say, I'm a nutritionist. And so there is a there is a big difference. So Libby's undergrad was at her bachelor's at Texas A&M and then her, her dietitian degree, dietetics degree came from Iowa state and she did yeah. that in ongoing education clinical. Is that what you call it? Yes. Yeah. The discussion that we had this week, which turned out to be really good. It came about because an animal rights group wanted to throw mud again on cholesterol. Cholesterol is a vital element of healthy living and so I did, well, Weston A. Price Foundation has tremendous information on the science behind this, but we have been tying up cholesterol with statins for far too long. Since the advent of statins, we've doubled heart failure in the United States adult population. Clearly, that doesn't look like a path of success. But then I, I, I took it a step further, and the statin actually disrupts the protein uh coenzyme 10q which leads to sustainability of muscle in the human and i never thought about it but as humans age we eat less protein because we think we need less but in fact Mm -hmm. the science says you need more protein so if you're eating less protein and you're taking a statin you're disrupting the protein sustainability because you disrupt what uh coenzyme 10q does and oh by the way your heart is a muscle. And so if you just follow that path, it all makes perfect sense on why heart disease continues to be a major problem. Where, where does that spin well, you in any rabbit hole, Andrew? I mean, I will say that I also see uh, people eating less protein because a lot of, a lot of doctors and just the media and what the government and these all these other agencies are saying is that eating meat or just eating beef and other stuff like that is not, I mean, it causes heart disease. Um, And then you think of, um, and so there's an organization, there's a university out of Boston that is called the Tuft University. So in 2021, they created, um, it's called a, it's a food compass, it's a nutrient uh, profiling system, which, ranked 8,000 foods from healthiest to least healthy. And it is based on their criteria, whatever that is. And they had 70 of the cereals that were ranked higher than whole milk, eggs, ground beef, and chicken breasts. I think one of the highest cereals was, um, I don't know if it was Frosted Flakes, but it, it, I mean, it was a sugary cereal. And so I looked at it a little bit further and they have a, um, they have the way that they weighed it in terms of their ranking. They, they ranked or they gave half a score or half a weight to anything that had fat or anything that had protein in it. So already at that point, whatever has fat or protein in it is already at, at a disadvantage and by, and by their weighting scale is going to be it's going to receive a lower score. Yeah, that ranking actually came out of the Dietary Guidelines Committee, which is made up half of USDA, half of Health and Human Services. 
the very committee that put that together is posted on the National Institutes of Health website, and you can go find that 95% of the members of that committee have a financial tie to cereal companies. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's all cereal, but yeah, I read I read that same, I don't know if it's the same, I guess, analysis that kind of critiqued the DGA. Mm-hmm. And it was that 95% of the 20 members they had a conflict of interest, either with an association of a big food or big pharma. I guess I don't know if, if it's just a relationship or if they have any kind of, like you said, a financial ties to it. But I mean, then just as a dietitian, it just makes you question and wonder what they are recommending. Is it really what is, I mean, what is driving force behind it? Is it really what we should follow? Because I, I read that analysis and I pretty much said that that the uh, the first uh, dietary guidelines for Americans was created in 1980 or 1983. Um, and the, the first edition, whatever it was called, it was actually written by it was like an aide person who uh, who worked for either a House of Representatives or a Senate. And he didn't have any public health background or he didn't have, or he didn't have any a nutrition background. And he wrote that and it was endorsed and enacted a couple of years later. And then I think it was in 1985 around there. Then, then that's when they came out with the first, uh, dietary guidelines. And then every five years, um, after that, they come up with new guidelines, but like in 1980, uh, that article said that less than 15% of Americans were overweight or obese. And now, you know, I guess 42 years later, it's what half of the Americans or, I mean, I mean, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's, it's a high number. And a lot of people have one or more chronic diseases and you just wonder like, what are, like, I mean, like, what are they eating? So how do you exist in this system where you're following the truth and the, the real science and, and frankly, common sense that, you know, a product like beef that has 10 essential nutrients, including brain enriching uh, fats, uh, but yet all the propaganda, all the media, all of the the community of nutritionists and dietitians and doctors are all saying the same thing. We have to be plant-based. Otherwise, you know, your cholesterol is going to be through the roof and you're going to have heart disease and diabetes and you're more likely to get cancer. Well, we know that's not true. And yet mm-hmm. propaganda is strong. And I'm sure you get pushback in the medical community for your viewpoints. Do you not? I mean, I don't know if I get pushback. I get, I get a shock and awe. Like there, I mean, are just like nurses who are, I mean, I'm in my early forties and there are nurses who are in their, in their twenties and they're healthy. And I say, you know, you can eat, if you're going to have yogurt, you can buy yogurt that is whole fat and you're, it's healthy for you. And they're just really shocked because they've been told or we've just as a country have been told that we need to eat low fat. And then when you just replace low fat, what do you add to it? You're adding foods that are higher in sugar, higher in sodium. I mean, I will say, I feel that people that we should be able to eat whatever we want. We should be able to choose. 
-hmm. what we want, what each person finds the best for them to eat, for them to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So whether that's vegan, whether that's plant-based, whether that's meat, we should, we should be allowed. But um, I, yeah, a lot are our academy, which is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I know they were really involved behind the scenes of the White House conference a couple of weeks ago. And I know they are really big into, into plant-based. Uh, I got to go to a break. But we will discover why that's happening with that academy when we return to the last segment of Roll Rod after this. Yeah, let's talk about beef and meat and dairy. Animals contribute so much to the ecological benefit of the planet. We tend to forget about that. You know, I actually do believe that you could find a way, it would be tough, but you can find a way to nutritionally supply what you need without utilizing a cow or any ruminant animal, so to speak. Uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't be the best, but you can make it happen. But the health of the planet is dependent upon animals grazing and animals recycling nutrition and putting it back into the soil. You cannot build the proper soil health without animals on the land. That's the bottom line. And we are trying to move away from that and understanding that and the basics of science. In fact, somebody that doesn't know anything about animal agriculture and yet guns, germs, and steel adequately describes how life is better thanks to cows because cows are just this amazing thing. I'm not discounting sheep. I think that sheep offer a tremendous opportunity. Cows cover more territory. Sheep need to be in multi-species grazing, and goats can be a part of the same thing. That's all part of a healthy ecosystem. And look, deer even factor into that. 35 million deer in the United States. By the way, that's the same number of animals in New Zealand where they're talking about doing a flatulent tax. Are they going to tax the deer too? Then who would pay that tax? Certified Piedmontese is an opportunity to utilize the cattle, the domestic cattle, and produce a beef supply that is nutritious, it's tender, and the only thing that we need are more cattlemen to be a part of the system. If you're interested in, in getting paid a premium to the tune of $180 over market price to produce some of this beef that we're talking about here. Now, good, bad, or indifferent? Not because grain feeding is a bad thing, but the certified Piedmontese system is moving into more and more of a grass-finished base program. That's what the consumer base wants. That's what we do. Actually, when you look at what the available forages are, it makes sense, particularly because you have that tenderness aspect from the myostatin gene. All of that matters only in that it continues to have a demand. You can get more details at LungCreekCattleCo.com. Welcome back. Roll route. Trent Luce alongside Andrew Evans joining us from Minnesota. Amanda Radke from South Dakota who, by the way, Andrew was talking about the aide that wrote those dietary guidelines in 82. That was a South Dakota representative whose aide was doing that. His name was George McGovern. We'll not hold that against Amanda. All right, so you mentioned, and uh, I'm hoping to get my friend Diane Sullivan, who was at that White House conference, and we've seen such a demonization of animal products you know who started the Academy of Dietetics, do you not, Andrew? I have no idea. 
the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Wow. And the Seventh Day Adventist Church since <clears throat> Ellen White in the late seventies, who, by the way, was the, the dietitian for the Kellogg brothers that taught everybody to stop eating bacon and eggs for breakfast and eat cereal in 1900, then went on to form the Academy of the Dietetics, hmm. uh, dietitians, and which is why at the core, you have tremendous people like yourself and our daughter Libby that see science and dietetics for what it really is. But there's still this whole movement, and it, it can be exemplified if you keep track of what's going on in Australia, because we've got a couple of friends down there, particularly Belinda Fetke, who is just unearthing all of this information. That's what you're fighting, and, and Amanda's question is the question. How do you, as a person who truly cares about the health and well-being and the nutrition of an individual, sort fact from fiction? And I think that's the question not only for dietitians, but for us living as healthy humans today. I mean, I, I guess one, th one thing that I do is that me and some colleagues here at my hospital system, we are updating, um, I guess, I don't know when we are updating the, uh, cardiac booklet into, I mean, to, just to make it more, I guess, more up to date based on the true science that we are not going to vilify eggs or dairy or meat and that it is a good part of what we, can eat and we're going to be healthy from it and it's not going to cause us to gain weight or to get heart disease so we are doing that and then i i mean i i use i'm quite active on facebook and so oftentimes i will post or share or whatever anything about how good dairy is for us or meat or anything or just trying to compare the ingredients of ground beef which has one ingredient your chicken has one pork has one versus anything that is plant-based and again and especially the plant-based meat alternatives. Again, people can eat what they want. I truly do not care. But I also don't, I want, also want those people to truly know that if they choose those plant-based dairy alternatives or burgers, that they are ultra processed, they are not healthy, they are not good for the environment, and they're just wasting their money. You bring up a great point. The, the same people that we've been fighting about removing milk, meat, and eggs from the diet have been the zealots for saying processed foods bad for you stay away from processed foods and and you you just so eloquently said ground beef has one item one ingredient chicken breast has one ingredient bacon has one ingredient how, how much more hypocritical can you be i mean it i just i don't get it i mean they have to be driven by something it just seems like Every kind of every kind of plant-based company has an association with with an investor, and I feel that that is a huge part of why of why plant-based meats. I mean, why they why they say that they're good for you, but they're not. And then, I mean, you see the stock of all the uh, whether it's Impossible or Beyond Burger, and they're just they're not they're not doing good. They're bad. And my daughter is five or almost five. And so we were at a grocery store over the summer and I, and I mean, I don't talk to, to, her, to her about it, but I, I, I had an example of a ground beef burger and uh, a plant-based like burger or like, or, or like meatballs. And I just showed her, I was like, which one would you rather eat? And she, she pointed to the ground beef one. And I was like, and so I said, what does, what does this one look like? Which is the plant-based. 
she was like, Daddy, it looks like poop. Mm-hmm. And if that's a, and if that at the time it's it's a four year old, I mean she, I mean she's just honest and a loving kid, and she just and she just spoke her mind, and I was like, well, good. And so this is this is what we're gonna buy because this is good for you. And I again, I try to tell people at work um, and just my family that that just eating meat isn't bad for you. I mean, there are, I mean, I think you can eat too much, but just trying to incorporate it in, in, in like eating it every day or whatever they want to do. It's, it is healthy for them. It's very healthy and it gives them a ton of energy. Andrew in 1987, 1987, I met a guy named Dr. Fred Matson, who ultimately became my swine nutritionist. And I learned more from him than anybody I've ever learned from in my life. But in 1987, Dr. Matson was telling me how important it was to feed pigs to have better gut health, because if we don't have the right gut health, the immune system is not going to function properly. And mm-hmm. everybody else in the pig business and swine nutrition business at that time was doing what we called least cost rations. So how can we get to the acceptable nutrient profile with the least amount of dollars input? Dr. Matson said that's wrong. You'll never maintain a healthy pig and you'll constantly be using stuff to try to fix what you didn't do by feeding the pig right. So with that being said, we were doing that with our swine diets in 1987. When do you assess the human population in dietetics started talking about let's feed the gut health because we have to have a strong immune system? I mean, I don't know if they're even doing that now because they are promoting just ultra-processed, I mean, ultra-processed foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Academy, they have a big uh, meeting every year and a lot of their big sponsors are big, are big, are big food. So again, you just question. I mean, what is their motives? What what is I mean, what is what is their motives? I think for I mean, for I guess to answer your question in terms of uh, could gut health, we I mean, we should be we should be active. We should eat a good balance of fruits, veggies, beans, and things like that. And you know, our kefirs, our yogurts, and just eat a wide variety of food. And if we can improve. Our, our weight, if we can improve and, you know, kind of improve on people who have uh, diabetes and so that will improve their health and that will also improve their overall gut health to where they will have higher levels of the good bacteria. And so then they will be able to hopefully fight off infection and have a stronger immune system. But again, it, it also comes down to the, each individual person. We have to take accountability and assess how can we be healthier and maybe there are ways that people can't be healthier because they're doing everything right but they still are sick and that's just unfortunate but I mean for the most part just what people eat we could all improve in, in what we eat I mean myself included I mean we don't have to eat perfect but I think we could eat a little bit better and we could all be a little bit healthier well what impressed upon me the last couple of years with the pandemic is we heard Fauci get up on the podium every day and talk about how we need to mask up and, and get vaccinated in order to 
you know, protect ourselves from the pandemic. But I never heard Fauci or any of the other elected officials say, now would be a really great time to focus on your health and your nutrition. They closed down gyms and, you know, little businesses that would sell this healthy food. They couldn't operate and they went out of business. And it was like, wow, what if we had changed the way we're looking at health and wellness, not from get a shot and you'll be safe, but really optimize your health and then your natural immune system can fight off disease and illness. And to me, that was just so frustrating because I, I feel like two years later, we could have a whole, we could be telling a whole different story in this country if the narrative had been different. Yeah. And I've, I mean, working in a big hospital, I've, I've just seen, I just, I just, I just, even with myself, I mean, with our gym closing and me just eating different or maybe me eating the same, but just not being able to exercise I gained a lot of weight. And so over the last year or so, I've been able to, to remove half that weight and I still have a ways to go. But I mean, I think, yes, in order to be healthy from COVID and just in general. And we had a bit of a technical glitch there at the end. But uh, thank you. Certainly a sincere thanks to the registered dietitian, Andrew Evans, for joining us from Minneapolis today and shedding some common-sense approaches to the dietetics issues and challenges that we have in front of us. Always thank you to Amanda Radke. Both of us, all three of us, actually remind you that all roads do lead to a roll route. And closing today, I want to remind you that the Wall of Honor pays tribute and gives honor to those individuals that have made the sacrifice. That might be a local EMT, could be a Korean War veteran, could be World War II veteran. Doesn't matter. The Wall of Honor says thank you to all who need to be recognized. You know, it's our time today just to take a stand, make sure that these freedoms do not continue to erode. And in fact, we turn the ship around. We only do that by paying tribute to those that have made such a sacrifice. The Wall of Honor.org is a place you can go submit a loved one. You can check out who's on there. And I know that the whole concept is kind of messed up because we think about the Wall of Honor as an actual physical wall. That's not what this is. This is a monitor system you put up in your business so that people, when they come to your restaurant, they come to your courthouse or your school system, there's a rolling show of individuals, where they're from, and what they have contributed. We need contributions to keep that happening. Go to thewallofhonor.org, make your contribution. Most importantly, we just find a way to say thank you. Maybe you just, every, if you see someone with a cap on, just make sure they know you appreciate them. See you tomorrow, Red Shirt Friday. Cows are not destroying the environment. Pigs are not polluting the water. With many people on social media spreading lies about what we do in agriculture, I had to stand up. I had to stand up and tell our story. I had to try to educate people about how farmers and ranchers take care of not just animals, but the land, water, and resources that we need to raise the animals. I had to tell them how we work with veterinarians and nutritionists and meat scientists to develop the best tasting, healthiest meat you can find. If you join 4-H, you too can learn about the science and technology of agriculture. You will also learn how to speak up for what you believe. Being a leader means standing up for all that matters. Learn more about the Nebraska Extension 4-H Youth Development Program at 4-h.unl.edu. They're giving away all this stuff to the 
people that are working, and we want to give it away to the people that went to college, paid too much money because they raised the college tuition because it was a freebie from the government, and now these kids owe money, and and we're just going to let them go. By golly, that's the way we do it. Well, that'll buy enough votes that we'll get AOC back in there. AOC thinks that you know daylight savings time is a bank. I mean, for goodness' sake. <laughs>